0: For our reading of Scripture this morning, we turn to the book of Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, which is essentially about the fact that we are sons of God and therefore have God as Father and are given an inheritance and that this is by way of or through our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll read the first 20 verses of Galatians 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we... When we were children, we we're in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that, ye have known God, or rather, are known of God, How turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, ye despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear bear you record that If it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy, because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you, that ye might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you, my little children." of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. We read that far in God's Word. And consider this morning the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 13. Why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God, since we are also the children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God. But we are children adopted of God by grace for His sake. Wherefore callest thou Him our Lord? Because he hath redeemed us, both soul and body, from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, and hath delivered us from all the power of the devil, and thus hath made us his own property. would be good for us, beloved, in our Lord Jesus Christ, to survey where we are in the great exposition of the Catechism on our only comfort in life and death and thereby remember, here too, though the subject matter is our Lord Jesus Christ, the approach of the Catechism is to teach that to our comfort. We are in this 13th Lord's Day, in the second great section of the Heidelberg Catechism, on the knowledge of our deliverance that began with Lord's Day 5. Then, after Lord's Day 7, which set forth what faith is, and the content of faith being the Apostles' Creed, We are now in the explanation of that creed and the second of the three main divisions of the Apostles' Creed, God the Son. There was God the Father, where we treated especially God the Father and our creation and His rule of providence as the Father's hand. And now we are in the second main section on God the Son, And the third, Lord's Day, on God the Son. In the first, we treated the personal name of the Son, Jesus. In the previous, Lord's Day, we treated the title of Jesus, namely the Christ. And now, we treat the relationship of Jesus to God, and also ourselves, which is not entirely new either. We saw already with regard to Jesus being the Christ that there is a relationship of Jesus to us. That was noted already with regard to Jesus Himself, where in the treatment of Jesus, it was especially noted that He is the only Savior. He is the Savior exclusively. And yet, throughout, the catechism has also been emphasizing there is a relationship to us, so that when we got to the subject of His office, the Christ, it was noted that we are partakers of His anointing. And therefore, we are Now not become Christs, but we are become Christians. We share in the office of prophet, priest, and king. Likewise now, in this Lord's Day 13, the Catechism wants to emphasize that Jesus is the Son of God, and that has great implications for us, and it sets forth a relationship with regard to us and God, namely, that we are also sons of God. But yet, like with regard to the exposition of Jesus being the Christ, a great distinction was made. Surely, Jesus is the Christ, the only Christ. We are not Christ, but we are Christians. There is that great difference so also here too there is a great, great difference between the manner and way in which Jesus is the Son of God and we are the sons of God. The Catechism brings that out in two ways. First, in explaining the unique manner in which Jesus is the Son of God, but then also in the explanation that He is is Lord, exactly because He is the Son of God uniquely. And what He does, He does uniquely. He remains Lord, which means that we are servants. Though we be sons, we also be servants. I'm going to consider these truths and others under the title, Jesus, the Son of God, our Lord. And we're going to notice in the first place that He is the only begotten. Son. Secondly, that He is the mediator of our adoption or our sonship. And then thirdly, that He is the Lord by birthright. We're going to try to tie together the idea of His Lordship and His being the begotten Son of God. First, the only begotten Son of God. Important and Significant is that when we consider the idea that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, that Scripture sets forth two different senses in which we may speak of Jesus as the Son of God, both of them equally valid and true, and both worthy and notable because Scripture takes note of them. Thus enriching our understanding of our Lord Jesus. The first is that Jesus is the eternal and natural Son of God as to His person. As to His person. We're talking now about the person of Jesus, just like we talk about the person of the Father and the person of the Spirit. And we need to do that because, as noted in the introduction, we are indeed exegeting or explaining the Apostles' Creed according to the threefold division, which is according to the three persons of the Holy Trinity. So that even as the person of the Father needs to be explained and noted that He alone is Father. When we get to the subject of Jesus, we have to take note of His person, that His person is the eternal Son of God. Likewise, we may not forget this when we get to the person of the Holy Spirit. What's notable about each of the persons is their personal distinction from one another, as well as the emphasis that all are God. The Catechism says that what distinguishes Jesus to us as the Son of God is that He's the only Christ alone, is the eternal and natural son of God so he is alone the eternal son there never was a time when the father was without his son or the son without his father that's incorporated into the Athanasian creed and indeed all the great ecumenical creeds he is the son eternal of the father alone Not made, nor created. Not made, not created, but begotten. What does begotten mean? That He is of the essence of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and equal to the Father. That is the explanation, therefore, not only credibly of what it means that Jesus is the eternal Son of God as to His person, but the natural Son. That is, there is an activity, an essential activity within the being of God whereby the Father is eternally begetting His Son. There is an eternal generation as it were, in the being of God where the Father begets a Son and the Son is begotten of the Father. An amazing, amazing idea. And that Son is the perfect production, replica, image of the Father. So much so that the same creeds that explain this call Him God- Out of God. And light out of light. That's what it means that you have the Son begotten of the Father. Out of the Father. And now not God so that He is a second God in addition to a first God, but God in that He shares all the divine perfections, activity, and work of the being of God. God out of God, light out of light. And here we have an amazing number of pictures that we could look at that help us understand even in our own world where a father, when he begets a son, begets another. Another. Another who is son and not father another besides and alongside of the Father. And yet, the same biblical pictures that are given to us also show the other reality that it's not like a second God. We have, for example, the great picture of the sun, S-U-N, in the heavens, whereby you have light, eternally begetting light, as it were generation now the point the point of all this and the point in all the ecumenical creeds is that Jesus is God by virtue of his person that's the emphasis of Scripture everywhere that's John 1 verse 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was god not only was the word with god but the word was god the word becomes flesh and dwelt among us or you have first john 5 verse 5 he that overcometh the world believeth jesus is the son of god and goes on to say is true god and eternal life always when we consider Jesus even when we consider the great humanity of Jesus in the incarnation of Jesus it's always important to remember that as to his person he is God and only God God out of God truly and eternally God and that's why when even one examines Jesus and Jesus reveals himself as a man. When Jesus goes about his work and his ministry, all the perfections of God are visible in him. Good exercise sometime for your own meditation and your own study is to take the Gospels. Just take the Gospels and start reading them. And then ask yourself, how is Jesus showing here? a certain perfection of God and God alone. You should be able to take virtually every perfection of God, every glory, every wonder of God, who and what God is, and it would be revealed in Jesus even as a human being. Even in His human nature, it was visible. And the Scriptures emphasize that too. When speaking about Jesus, refers to Him as the One whose goings forth have been from everlasting. Jesus' own words, for example, that He was eternal in John 8. Verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. The Jews understood that Jesus there was claiming to be true and eternal God, which was why they picked up stones to stone Him for blasphemy. He has knowledge of all things he's omniscient Peter confessed that in John 21 verse 17 Lord thou knowest all things thou knowest I love thee what a confession that is to make that sometimes even when we doubt our own love of God faith yet can confess Thou knowest, I love thee. Jesus referred to himself as the Almighty God. We see his great power, his almighty power, stilling the wind and the waves, working miracles, casting out devils, and even forgiving sins. And though scripture also, therefore, attributes Works to Jesus and to Jesus even as the incarnate one that's the amazing thing that simply because they are attributed to the son of God as to his person they are attributed to Jesus in the flesh works and acts that belong to God alone that was what made the disciples fall to their feet in worship that is what drew the elect unto Him, and made them confess, Thou art the Christ. In Colossians 1, verse 16, that we read not so long ago, creation is attributed to Him. For by Him, that is Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Even providence. We noticed when we discuss providence, creation and providence, that especially highlight God the Father, according to the explanation of the Heidelberg Catechism. Nevertheless, are also attributed to the Son being the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power. Talking about Christ there, upholding. Upholding, you remember, is the language of providence. Or as I mentioned, forgiveness of sins. But now, Having said that, there is another sense in which Jesus is called the Son of God. A very important sense. One different than the sense whereby His person is eternally begotten of the first person. And that is that He is the begotten, only begotten Son of God as to His human nature. When we look at the reality of Jesus in His human nature, that He is a man, that He is made like us in all things and accepted, the explanation for that may not be man. may not be attributed to man in any way, including the Virgin Mary. It is attributed to God. It is God who begets Him. And now, not simply in the sense of the first person, but the triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, begat Jesus as to His human nature. And that too, in a very real sense, may be spoken of as eternal and natural. It's not like the one is eternal and natural, but the other is not. But eternal now in a different sense. In this sense, that God eternally chose and determined to have the Son become incarnate and in our flesh. That that was an eternal act of the triune being of God. As to the will of God, that God determined that this would occur in the fullness of time then if you want to speak even of it being natural, think of it this way, natural as to the divine being of God. Not now as an essential activity of the triune being of God, but something that takes divine power and strength to accomplish. The Scriptures here too hint at that. When, for example, in 1 Timothy 3 verse 16, The incarnation is called the mystery of godliness. And one of the Reformed creeds even talks about it occurring after an unspeakable manner. This, of course, is patterned after the sonship of the first person begetting the second person. God delights in His Son as to His person eternally and therefore also delights in His Son taking a human nature by the operation of the Holy Spirit. It's always an amazing thing. It's the great wonder of all wonders. The triune being involved in the begetting of Jesus as to His human nature. According to the will of the Father, it is the Son who takes that human nature and it occurs by a mighty, mighty power of the Holy Spirit. And we have to remember that. That belongs to the Sonship of Jesus. First is person. Secondly is nature. Now there is another sense in which Scripture speaks of Jesus being begotten by God the Father or by God as His Father. And this too we bring out because it's related to our own sonship. And that is, He's begotten when in His human nature He is raised from the dead. That's the teaching of the apostles throughout the book of Acts, especially Acts 13, verse 33, which calls the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday the fulfillment of Psalm 2 that we sang. Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten Thee. The New Testament makes plain that Psalm 2 isn't talking about the day of His incarnation, that is, His conception and birth, but the day in which He is raised from the dead. Now you say, how so? Well, consider that begetting is the act of giving life Giving life to something that does not exist or is not there. The idea is that Jesus is dead. God's Son is dead. He's been crucified on the cross. He's as dead as you and I are dead when we go into the grave. He is not. He's not living. But God brings Him forth from the grave because of His great, great, Sacrificial death. Willingly and obediently giving Himself unto death. God rewards Him. He merits with God. Does what we cannot do. He is the righteous One. And death may not hold Him. Death may not take Him. And so He's raised from the dead. And so much is that a giving of life that it's called a begetting. Has important implication for us too, because, for example, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, that teaches that we also will be raised from the dead. There's a sense in which we too will be begotten in the future by the same Spirit of God, that Christ is the first begotten from the dead. And therefore, there will be many that follow because of the Spirit by which it occurs, is the same Spirit that has something to do with our Sonship. So that, with regard to Jesus being the only begotten Son of God. Next, I want to emphasize what I call the fact that He is the mediator of our adoption. The idea here is that we, obviously, as we know, are sons of God also. We are sons of God by adoption. But what I want to emphasize here is that the cause of that the reason for that the explanation for that is Jesus Christ we want to connect our sonship to the sonship of Jesus Christ and his being begotten we are indeed the sons of God that may not be forgotten that may not be denied it is subtly denied when that term only begotten is excluded From many modern translations of the Bible, that great phrase, even incorporated into the Apostles' Creed, that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, is changed to one and only Son, which subtly denies the fact that there are other sons of God. That's not the distinction the catechism makes. Catechism doesn't teach us that Jesus is the only Son of God, and we are not, therefore, sons. No, the reality is, exactly because that's what's taught in Scripture, even though it would be removed from translations, is that He's the only begotten Son, the only eternal and natural Son. But we are sons too. We're sons, and this is important to remember, even as Christ is Son. Now there's a great distinction as I just explained it, but the point is, That when we consider our sonship, we need to look at it through the lens of Christ so that we learn what exactly that means. It means, for example, that we are able, not only that we have the right, but we are able so that we actually do cry out, Abba, Father! We're a son of God in that sense. To deny that we say that, To deny that we can say that because we're totally depraved and all we are is totally depraved is to deny that we are sons of God. We live by the same life of Jesus as the Son of God. We live a life of covenant love and fellowship with the triune being of God, even as Jesus does as the Son of God. We live with Him. And we share in the same blessings of His sonship. That's Romans 8.2. If you are children, then heirs. That's brought out in Galatians 4 also. That's why we read that. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We are glorified together. So much is this true, something we also may not forget, that God assures us of that. God wants us to know and remember that. Amazing thing here too, correlation to our own homes. A strange home it would be where your children are always doubting whether they're actually your children. Thinking maybe they belong to another family. Wondering if you're really mother and really father. If that's going on, you'd say something strange here. Something wrong with how I raised my children. There's something wrong in the thinking of my children. And if there is that thinking, we quickly move in as parents and we say, No, no, no. No, no, no. You understand you are my child. Especially true if they're adopted. Maybe asking because they look different. We say, No, no. You belong to me. You're my child. God's the same way. God doesn't adopt us as His children and then say, well, I'd like to have them wonder about that their whole life. In fact, that's the normal way it ought to be. So they're forever questioning who they belong to, who they are sons of. No, that's not God's will and way for us. But we're not now sons of God in the first place by being begotten, but by adoption. That comes first. That's an important difference between us and Christ. We are adopted. And we all know what that means and what that emphasizes. What that emphasizes is not that we are sons by an eternal and natural activity of God, although, here too, remember that it is part of the eternal will of God to choose us as sons. That's election to adopt us into Christ. That's his choice in election. But that term adoption emphasizes exactly that is a choice of grace. That God does not choose us to adopt us as his children and heirs, choose us to belong to his son Jesus Christ because we deserve it, because we are worthy of it. No, that term adoption, as we all know, emphasizes something entirely different. Parents go to an adoption agency and they choose a child, they select a child who's been abandoned, who's been forgotten, who's been abused, who needs special needs and help in an act of their own will. Say, I want that child. That child that's lying there, forgotten, that will never have a parent, that's been left for dead, left on their own. And we all know that adoption means that now that child has all the rights and privileges of a natural child. That's the great, great, great sign of that we are adopted. And adopted first. And notice the catechism emphasizes that. That we are children adopted by God by grace. And then now notice for His sake. Lay hold of that. That for His sake emphasizes what grace it is. It emphasizes that Jesus has a sort of right to us. That God, as it were, adopts us as His children and heirs because He looks at His Son. Not at us, He looks at His Son. He looks at what He's given to His Son, what He promised His Son. He didn't simply have a son, beget a son, and beget a son even with regard to His human nature for His own sake as such. But He gave to Him. Brothers and sisters made Him the head of a family. Gave Him a birthright. He is the first begotten even from the dead. And that's why it's right at this point when you look at the adoption of us, Scripture always emphasizes the death of Christ. It relates it to our justification. It relates it to the atonement. The idea is that when Jesus gave His life for ours, it was a deliberate, a deliberate act of His will, purchasing us, signing the adoption papers, saying, I died for these, I give my life for theirs. It's even worse than when we parents go to adopt a child which is living, maybe abandoned in a crib in some God-forsaken country, but it's worse than that. With regard to us, the one whom Jesus adopts are dead, dead in trespasses and sins. As to their heart, enemies, aliens, against God. Jesus says, So I give my life for theirs. I shed my blood for theirs. Notice the emphasis of that in Galatians. So you have to connect adoption to redemption, the purchase of us, the buying of us. Now it's exactly because of that that now the catechism connects all this to the Lordship of Jesus. The catechism, of course, is explaining the phrase in the Apostles' Creed, the only begotten Son of God, our Lord. But that was added to the creed. That was put in the creed deliberately because our fathers even way back then recognized a connection between Jesus being the only begotten Son of God, our being adopted as sons of God, and His Lordship. And the connecting link is that He is the mediator He is the mediator of our redemption, and that redemption is a purchase of us. Now to be true, that purchase of us, that buying of us, gives Jesus the legal right to adopt us, to call us His children and heirs, to be a part of His family, so that there's an inheritance involved, there are riches involved. But that also establishes the great difference between our Sonship and His. Again, the distinction always has to be maintained. We do not become Christs. We become Christians. We become sons of God, but in such a way that He remains the only eternal and natural Son and Lord, Lord, Interesting how in the Old Testament Scriptures even that was foreshadowed and pictured, where the firstborn had certain rights, had certain responsibilities too. Had certain rights, the birthright, the birthright blessing. You all know what was attached to that in the covenant life of the Old Testament saints. But also responsibility. It was responsible for the care of all the other even natural children Now we have to apply that to our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why in our theology and in our study of the relationship of us to our Lord Jesus Christ, that fact may never be denied. It is denied. There are many who will claim Jesus as Savior the one who saves them from their sins, the one who saves them from damnation, the one who saves them to eternal life. But He's not Lord. That may seem strange to you, but that is indeed a controversy. That is the essential error of antinomianism. That Jesus died, freed us from the law, which is all set forth in Galatians 4, but in such a way, that we no longer have to obey the law of God. It's no longer the will of God for our life. It's been abrogated. It's been done away with. And they might even point to Galatians 4 as proof of that. That's not what Galatians 4 is teaching. They would say that to call yourself a servant of Jesus Christ is to still be in bondage. No. No, that's not true at all. The apostle said that when we were under the law, We were under a form of bondage, but not just under the law, but even of serving other gods and idols, the ordinances and rules of the world. We were not belonged exclusively to God and Jesus Christ. But that's all flipped now. That's all changed now. Jesus is our Lord. Doesn't mean it's a free-for-all. We get to do whatever we want. No more than your children do. He's bought us. He owns us. He has the right to tell us what to do, but oh, what a difference! This Lord is our brother. This Lord is the one who showed Himself to be unlike any other Lord in that He gives His life for ours. He rules us in His love. He rules us by His Spirit. And here's where, especially, the Scriptures emphasize what that will of God is for us it is that in a very sense real sense we also are begotten not begotten first as it were but begotten as a part of our adoption we are indeed born again that as adopted sons and daughters exactly because this is for Christ's sake exactly because he is the mediator he is the firstborn the first begotten from the dead There is a begetting of us. He gives us His Spirit. And that Spirit now is not a spirit of rebellion, a spirit of service simply to the law, but is the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we are indeed transformed like even a natural son into the image of God. Now again, here too, scriptures remind us of the great difference between Jesus being in the image of God and us. Jesus, as to his person, is only the only begotten Son of God. That will never be true of us. Nevertheless, nevertheless we who are human beings, as to our person, men and only men, are given the great, great qualities, the great, great virtues of our divine God. He endues us with His grace, with His love, with His wisdom, and with His knowledge as creatures so that there is, in a very real sense, even as human beings, a reflection, even a perfect reflection of God in us. And that is, what the will of God and the law of God really sets forth. This is how you, this is how I look like God. This is how we behave like God. And notice, it's a one-word summary, love. Love God, love your neighbor. That's what the sons and daughters of God do. Again, for His sake, by His power, who is our Lord, the only begotten Son of God. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God and Father in heaven, we thank Thee for our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only begotten Son, who has adopted us as His children and heirs, and who as Lord, having redeemed us body and soul, from all our sins, bought us, and therefore delivers us from all the power of sin and from the devil, so that we are begotten, begotten and formed in Thine image. This, O Lord, is our great delight and the praise of our lips and the joy of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.